Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming, ladies. This is a treat for us. There we go. To be to have you all here. That is true. I'm behind on Doug's blog all the time. And, but I try. I, I try. And, uh, and then the kids have to start writing books and doing podcasts. And I try to listen to those when I'm ironing. It's very productive. When Becca and Rachel first started doing what have you, I would be ironing and thinking, wait a minute, I want to say a word. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a, a Spurgeon quote, ladies. That was, a, you know, or... Just wanting to chime in, but anyway, it's been good for me. I've had to restrain myself, and I love it. I get so cracked up sometimes. I'm crying listening to them because I think you're crying too. You're all right. So um, on the way here this morning, I picked up my oldest granddaughter, Jemima, who's running the camera, the video, somewhere, and we were chatting on the way here about my talk. Becca's talk, we were talking about having our talks ready. And I said, well, Jemima, at least I'm not getting graded like you are when you're writing a talk for school. And she said, no, you're not getting graded. You're just getting judged. <laughs> I'm like, well, thank you, honey. So ladies, don't judge me. All right. My topic is grand view mothering. And I'm not sure what that is either. <laughs> but I think it's a good title, and I know part of it is because I'm a grandma, it's Grand View, so that's why that title works. The Grand View. But this isn't just about grandmas, so if you're not a grandmother, please don't get up and leave. But I want to talk about, it's Grand View, it's Grand View Mothering, and what our view is, and what it's supposed to be, and how we can have a beautiful view of what God is doing in our lives and around us, getting eyes to really see. And I grant you, the older we get, the bigger the view is. It just comes with the territory. So we want to nurture that and not get in the way of it. We want to appreciate it. But I want you to know this talk isn't just for grandmothers, it's for women. Future mothers, current mothers, past mothers, women who are not mothers, or past the age of becoming mothers. So I want you to think of yourselves as mothers in Israel. Women are women, just women are naturally good at mothering, even your little bitty daughters, right? They have mothering skills. Doesn't it come out at an early age? It's something God put in there. And so women are just naturally good at mothering. And if you've read that hideous strength by C.S. Lewis, Becca reminded me of this. There's Mother Dimble. It's one of the wonderful characters. And she is, she's barren. She's married. She has no children. But she's Mother Dimble. And I think Lewis was saying something there. And she's mothering everybody at St. Anne's, really. And not Molly Codling or patting them on the head, but she's mothering. And so we can think of ourselves as mothers, whether we are technically mothers or not. Okay, so I think that's everybody here. 
even you young women who are not even thinking about marriage yet, like this row of granddaughters right there that I have. There's a lot of mothering that goes on in our church, and I bet it goes on in yours as well. And, and again, it's not just biological mothers. They're helping. They are doing all kinds of good works, showing hospitality, clothing and feeding people, showing generosity, teaching, babysitting, comforting, praying. There's so much support work. Um, encouraging. These are all feminine traits. These are motherly traits. And they're spiritual traits. It's basically walking in the good works God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. So I think when we're mothering, we can think of ourselves as mothers. Um, whether we definitely are or not in that other sense. And so as we take off from here and talk about the grand view of it, I want you to understand that all of us are leaving a legacy. We're all leaving a legacy of some kind behind us. Maybe it is in your church. Maybe you um, got something, a program started that's gonna go on for generations, ladies, when you're long gone. Uh, maybe it is helping get a school started. Or it's just starting some kind of ministry of some kind that you're involved in, but at some point you let go and it keeps going. It just keeps on going, as well as leaving a legacy in your own families. But that what we're doing, we have to think, this is, this is not limited to just right now. This is, this is much bigger than we understand or that we can see with our eyes. We have to see it by faith. And the more we see it, that's what I mean by view, the bigger the view is. Um, you know when you're climbing, the higher you get, the better the view, right? And it's, it's not always easy to climb. I mean, it's, it's hard work. But we're pressing on to higher ground. You know that old hymn uh, about higher ground? We used to sing that all the time back in the body shop in the early days when we met in the body shop. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures to you, but I, I just want you to know no matter how humble your circumstances, you can have a million-dollar view. And it's just our perspective as we press on and lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of us. A couple of scriptures. One, Philippians 3. Paul, I, I tell you, the man left a legacy. Do you think? He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. And we probably are familiar with this verse about reaching forward, pressing on the prize, the upward call, upward and onward. But then he says in verse 15, Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. So we, we should all be mature enough in Christ to get this. We are forgetting what happened before. Because, not because it was necessarily a bad thing 
We're forgetting it because there's so much on our plate right now. We can't just sit and be nostalgic about last year. There's so much to do, so much ground to cover. It's a pretty steep hill ahead of us. So we got to forget what's behind and press on. And remember, it's an upward call, like heads up. Um, and if we're mature, we're going to be thinking that way as we walk daily. The other one, Hebrews 12, and maybe you'll see some similarities. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Okay, when you are trying to climb upward, right, the last thing you need are some weights on your ankles. I know maybe some of you do that on purpose. You're getting fit. But Paul says, or whoever wrote Hebrews says, lay it aside. Lay aside the weight and the sin, which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. All right. Oh. There's a race. You're all in a race. And I remember when, uh, referring back to the intro, when I read Nate's book, Death by Living, he said, wouldn't it just be, of course he said it far more eloquently than I'm going to, but wouldn't it be dreadful if there was no finish line? We're just running aimlessly around and around and around. Think of that. And so our lives are a race, but it has a finish line. And that's where we're going. And we're trying to actually get there. When you're running a race, you're not thinking, oh, I hope I don't hit the finish line anytime soon. Especially track, right? Track, is that what you're thinking? When you're running track? Oh, no. Throw an extra 400 on this. <laughs> no. All right, so back to the verse. Lay aside every weight and the sin that is so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. I think you quoted this, Lizzie. And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So as we're running, we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, who has run ahead of us. And this is how we are enabled to run with endurance, keeping our eyes on him. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Hallelujah. We didn't come up with our faith as a good idea, self-help plan. He's the author of our faith, and he is going to finish it. Our duty is to keep our eye on him, to run with endurance, to be looking to him, um, keeping our eye on the goal and the prize and the finish line. So how do we do this? Well, this is about simple duties. I'm not talking about anything really complicated or you know that you all have to pray about for a week like what is the special thing God wants me to do it's like no you you're to do the duties that are right in front of you right now whatever that next thing is that's that's what you're called to do that's part of your race all the simple duties God has laid out for us you don't hear that word duty very much anymore do you uh, as far as women doing their duties and I've used this illustration before but my mom was a war bride. My dad was wounded in World War II, came back, 
and met my mom, swept her off her feet, and he was kind of a hero, you know, because he was back from the war wounded. And um, so they got married and had a couple of kids, and then he had to go off to the Korean War. And he, he was gone 18 months. And she had my older brother and sister, who were just little kids, and she taught herself to sew and knit and just was productive. I think there was a lot of bridge playing back in those days, too. <laughs> At any rate, one time I asked her, probably in her 80s, I don't remember, but it was later. I said, Mom, how did you just keep on going? I mean, 18 months, and Dad is gone, and he's not just gone, he's in a war, and he's a pilot dropping bombs, and, you know, he's in the action. She said, Nancy, I was just doing my duties. Isn't that the best answer? Um, not, she wasn't writing poor, pitiful me Facebook posts and Instagrams. Um, you know, but she was living in a community of other women whose husbands were off at war also, which must have been a great encouragement. And maybe they were, you know, playing some bridge. <laughs> but also teaching each other how to knit and sew and, and do these things. And just to do their duties cheerfully unto the Lord. All right. I get off, and then it's like, where was I? That wasn't in my notes to tell that story. Um, all right. So it's a simple daily thing. That's what it. That's where I was. Those simple daily things um, that we're called to do. And sometimes you will be surprised when you are just doing your day-to-day -day things. Nothing spectacular, but of the surprising fruit that it bears. Sorry, it's so cold in here, isn't it? That's why my nose is runny. All right. Um, sniff, sniff. Um, sometimes it seems like the most insignificant things, and so I'm going to tell you another little story. I'm going to keep my finger here where I am. Um, so when my kids were in Logot School, and we had helped plant that school for our kids, and... You know, Doug was doing things like hanging sheetrock and getting home really late at night. And, um, you know, it was just doing pounding nails. It wasn't a super spiritual activity. And it turned into a school. It was wonderful. And then our kids got to go there. And so as they're getting older and I'm starting to teach there, and there were some people, as it started to hit, we're getting some high school age kids. There were some people that started talking about, well, let's have a prom or something. And I remember thinking, Doug and I talking, mm -mm, we don't want a prom. We've got to figure out something else quick, you know, and steer this thing before it gets out in front, whatever that might be. So in God's providence, I picked up a newspaper that had a story about a school down in Lewiston that had a little social event called Protocol where they taught the kids manners and then they went on an event. It's like, this is amazing. And so we got started on protocol, and I asked this little old lady in our community if she would teach the manners part. And she was so good, and the kids loved her, and she was a kick. And this, so this little program launched, and many of you have been involved in it, who are here from Logos, you know, over the years, have helped in different ways, or have attended, or whatever. So it was fun, and I was, I remember the, one of the first ones, Jan, I don't know if Jan saw you're still here, but she and I ended up, so we had this protocol at a bed and breakfast in Pullman, 
one of the very first ones. And we end up, after all the kids leave, doing the dishes in the bed and breakfast, you know, in the kitchen. And we look at each other like, what are we doing? Why didn't we hire somebody for this job? It's 11 o'clock. Um, anyway, it's very nuts and bolts. So fast forward. And the program's taken off, and other schools have picked it up. And it just was a little something we planned for our kids, all right? Doug and I were traveling, visiting a school somewhere, a classical Christian school. I don't remember where it was now. I was trying to remember. But we were in someone's home, and I was visiting with the high school daughter. And she said, well, we have protocol at our school. She said, have you ever heard of that? <laughs> and I said, I have. I have. You know, tell me what you're doing. <laughs> and I just thought, see, isn't that, it's a legacy. And as we were just figuring out, like, why are we washing the dishes at 11 at night? Or, you know, it has turned into something not only my kids enjoy, now my grandchildren are enjoying, and so are a bunch of other kids. So this is a really mundane, funny example, but that happens all the time, where women are just helping and doing, and it turns into a legacy. And think of that when you're doing the dishes. This is a legacy I'm leaving. Um, we really are building something, and we don't see it at the time. It takes years, right? We may not ever see it, but we are also the, are receiving all the time the benefits of other people's hard work and the legacy they have left to us. And we need to ponder that, I think, sometimes. Like, what did your parents leave for you and your grandparents and your great-grandparents? And we don't even know. We may have some stories that give hints. But just to understand that we are receiving so much from the hard work of many who've gone before us. And so we're taking our place in this story and doing what God's calling us to do. Nothing special. It's just what is on our plate today. And that he somehow turns us into a blessing that grows. All right. Sometimes, as we're gaining ground, okay, and part of our goal in gaining ground is to be a blessing to our kids, so they have a boost up, and our grandchildren. You know, we wanted to provide an education to our own children that would be far better than the one re we received. I remember telling the kids when they were little, someday you're going to be teaching me. And so guess what? Guess where I was sitting the first two hours? Being taught. And I've been being taught by my own kids for years, sometimes informally, sometimes formally. But I'm the recipient of this blessing. It's, it's a mutual benefit. Um, but sometimes as we're pressing on, we actually think we're losing ground rather than gaining it. And I think that's an illusion. Unless you're really throwing in the towel and giving up, you're not losing ground. It's just a steep hill. And you thought you already climbed one and that you should be better at it now, and you should be able to sprint up this one. But I think, no, it's still hard work, and you gotta keep those mountain climbing boots on, and roll up your sleeves and keep working, and keep going. You're not losing ground. God is testing you, maybe showing you your faith muscle got a little flabby, and you needed a little workout, right? But you wanna interpret his ways always in that positive light. He is 
strengthening me. He knows I was getting a little flabby. He wants to keep me in shape. He wants me to grow. Uh, faith is a muscle. And when we don't use it, it gets weak and flabby. As we just press on day to day, our view is going to get better. It's going to get better and better. As we see behind us, even though we're not focused on that, but we see God's been so faithful all these times. He's going to meet me again here. We see what he's doing in other people's lives. It really expands our view. But what gets in the way of our view? Sin does. Sin gets in the way of our view. It always obscures it or blurs it or impedes it or blocks it or muddies it. Always. Forgiveness washes it away. It like clears the windshield of all the mud and debris. And I believe contentment, confession, and forgiveness, and choosing to be content in hard things, that's what clears the view so you can really see. I want to plug this little book, The Loveliness of Christ. It's an old book. It's just a few selections from letters Samuel Rutherford wrote to his Christians in the 1600s when he was under house arrest and was barred from his own church. He couldn't preach anymore. Um, CCM recently reprinted this, and tonight, 5.30, CCM table will be up out in the hall, and they will have copies of this. But I've had, I've had many copies over the years that I end up giving away, and I have a couple of sweet old copies I do not give away. It's probably... Probably a little idolatry there. <laughs> but anyway, this is a, I'm going to quote him, and so I just wanted to plug the book, and I hope there's enough for all of you to get a copy because this is a treasure. This is just a treasure. All right, here's the quote. This is kind of, I hope to be kind of what you go away with today. It were wisdom for us to be free, plain, honest, and sharp with our own souls and to charge them to brew better. All right, I'm going to say that one more time. It were wisdom for us to be free, plain, honest, and sharp with our own souls and to charge them to brew better. I think we could say to one another, what you got brewing there, huh? <laughs> how's, how's your soul brewing? Um, so I am going to hit some practical applications, and you can charge your own souls to brew better. I'm just going to bring up some topics. Metal, just a little. And uh, hopefully this will encourage you to be sharp with your own soul and brew better. First, and so I'm going to talk about your view again, your viewpoints. What is your viewpoint on a few different things? First is the word. What's your view of the Bible? How many of you are doing the Bible reading challenge with us? Do you mind reading it? I love it. Look at that. Fantastic. Okay. How many do we have reading together? 17, 8,000, 8 million, no, 8,000 <laughs> in the Facebook group. Anyway, um, all right, so what's your view of the word? Just, we want to keep that view in mind. It's milk and honey for our souls. It's milk and honey. It's not a box to tick off. It's a meal. It's a delight. It's wisdom. It's comfort. It's joy. It's meeting with Christ. Um, we want to ask God to enlarge our hearts as we read his word, 
and love it more and more. We want it to grow. We want it, we want to treasure it up in our hearts. Sometimes I think of people we've read about or people who are in prison right now for their faith and thinking, I hope they're remembering all the scripture, you know, because they don't have a copy with them. And we should really treasure it because we always have a copy of the word that's so readily available. Treasure it in your heart. Next, I'm going to scoot quickly on to the next one. What's your view of weekly worship? So do you look forward to it? Is it the best day of the week? Do you prepare yourself each week for worship? Because if you do, just like if we love God's word, our eyes are open, our view is bigger, right? We see more what God is doing and how he's feeding us. But what about worship? How do you view that? The more we treasure up the privilege and blessing of worshiping God together his, as his covenant people every week, the more our view is enlarged. How do you do that? How do you prepare yourself for worship? Well, you could start by praying for your pastor. Um, pray for the elders. Pray for the music. I mean, think of all the people involved in every Sunday worship service. Some of you, your husbands are the pastor. How many of you have pastor husbands? You can put them up high. Yeah, see? Don't you think it'd be great if your whole congregation was praying for that man every week? Do I have an amen? Yeah. So thank you all who are doing that already. Thank you. Or I have here in my notes some funny little random thoughts that I'm sure none of you ever do. Do you ever bring a critical spirit with you to church? You criticize the singing, the sermon, the minister's tie, the seat you're in, the way other people dress, their children's behavior. Whoops. So why don't we, you know, just think about your, your church congregation and pray in preparation. Like pray for those people with the kids who are rowdy. Think, well, what would happen if you start praying for them? Pray for the music leader who's maybe having a struggle or the piano's out of tune or whatever. Start, invest. Do you see that? As you invest in it, you come in with a different attitude and you're hungry. You've been praying for the food that's going to be delivered. And so you're prepared and you view things differently. All right, um, then of course, if you get to where that is covered, you love the Lord's Day, you can start praying about hospitality. Um, I know that this can be, you can feel over your head. When Doug first became a minister, um, something we had not anticipated, it just happened to us. Um, I felt way in over my head, and an old missionary was visiting my in-laws, and we talked to him, and he said, just put on your hip waders and just go for it. <laughs> I didn't know what he meant exactly, but I think I know what he means. It's like, it looks like a slog. Yep, it is, so just put on those big boots and get going. But over the years with hospitality, oh, what I was going to say is, so when I first became a minister's wife, I thought I had to have everybody in the church over for dinner, and I could not ever do it. And Doug would say, Nancy, don't do that. Don't think that. It's impossible. 
And I remember when Rachel got married and Becca, we invited the whole church. I thought, did it? <laughs> Everybody. They only got cake, but I did it. I had everyone. <laughs> um, anyway, but there's a great verse in Psalm 1830, and I love it. And even at Sabbath dinner sometimes, when we were having a large crew over, which was every week, I'd wake up in the morning and think, I cannot, I can't do it. Can't do it. And here's my verse. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. I want you all to picture me running and leaping <laughs> over a city wall. That's what this is talking about. And at the end of the day, I'd say, I made it. Lord, you did it again. I got over, I left over that thing. So I'm telling you, some, sometimes we're called to do things that seem absolutely impossible, right? Not going to be able to do this. There's your verse. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Just watch me. All right, so those are the first couple things. But now let's just talk about your home a little bit. Um, do you have a thankful attitude about it? The house, the apartment, the duplex, whatever it is, what is your view? What do you see when you see your house? Do you feel like, oh, so much work? Or is it oh, all the things that are falling apart? Or not as pretty as so-and-so's, not right. Crummy, that's a crummy view. In one of our early homes, my view, my real view out the window was the asphalt cul-de-sac and a telephone pole. And God dealt with me about that. And uh, the result was I planted a bunch of tulips in the front yard of that little duplex. And they, I mean, I repented first. And then I planted the tulips. And they were literally, I mean, they were so high. People would say, where'd you get the tulips? And I know it was God who said, see, just plant the tulips. I, and in Rachel's book, Yuhu, she has a chapter about plant a flag. Okay? We're going to plant a flag. We'll plant a tulip too. You can do both. <laughs> um, but those things were enormous, and it just brought me joy. It's like, you know, I want to be content with the asphalt and the telephone pole because there was a lot of good, good fruit happening there in that little place. What's your view of your husband? Are you critical? Are you comparing him to other husbands that you think are more spiritual or more athletic or more thoughtful or make more money or have more success or etc.? It's the same formula for all these things. You confess the critical spirit. I know over the years, if I saw something in my husband, it's like, I probably should bring this to his attention. I'll pray about it for a few days, maybe a week, and see if I still feel like I should bring this to his attention. And by the end of a couple of days, I'm realizing I'm the problem here. I'm not saying anything about that. This, here's the problem. So that's a good formula. It works. But you begin confessing the critical spirit and thanking God for your husband that you freely married. Express gratitude to God for your husband and gratitude to your husband. 
What's the Bible say you should do? You should honor him, you should respect him, you should submit to him in all things as to the Lord. If you're not doing those things, no wonder you have a crummy view. Don't let this slip. Go back to the word. Go back to the beginning. What's it say? Are we going to obey what God says? And in this crazy world we live in where it's sort of dangerous to say you're going to honor and submit to your husband, let's do it more boldly. Let's lean into it, ladies. Pray for your husband. He needs your prayers. Who else will pray for him if you don't? Maybe his mom. You know, pray for your husband. He needs your prayers. He needs your encouragement, your respect, your love. You get it from God first and then share it with your husband. There's a verse I love in Song of Songs talking about the beloved, the husband. It says, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. You know, just to have that attitude that you're bringing in to your marriage, what a great view that is. Now, I know there can be issues, of course, you know, always, but start here first. I'm just saying, start here first. Pray about it. Are you supposed to bring this to him? How are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? But get this right first. The way you view your husband affects how your children are going to view him. And there's nothing children hate so much as seeing their dad disrespected by their mom. Don't like it. Um, the more dad is lovingly respected and honored, the more secure the kids feel. They can have their discussions elsewhere. You know, mom and dad can talk about things. But the kids need to see mom respecting dad. It's not the only thing they have to see, but I'm just hitting that. The Christian home, of course, we wanted to be Christ-centered, but I remember with the kids, I really wanted to make the home dad-centered. You know, obviously Christ-centered first, but then after that, like, dad-centered home. And Becca was talking about referring questions. That was my go-to. That's a very good question, Nate. When dad gets home, <laughs> we will ask him. Let's remember that. And so dinner time, I'd say, okay, ask your question. Here he is. And it was great. Now, it's not that I never answered any, obviously, but I deferred. And I know that, that that helped make the, I don't know, a husband-centered, a dad-centered home, which is a healthy, he's the head of his house. We defer to dad. We love dad. And we're proud of dad as a team. Um, Little resentments over a lot of little things, ladies, are going to turn into a big log jam of bitterness in your marriage. So um, be, his, be your husband's wife. Yes, be his wife. <laughs> be his crown and glory. Be his crown and glory. And um, don't let a bunch of little silly, naggy things turn into a big mess. Years ago, a woman called me. He's like, I'm ready to leave my husband. I'm leaving right now. I said, well, hang on a minute. Let's talk. So tell me what's going on. And so I kept asking questions. Guess what it was? He leaves it. I'm not making this up. He leaves his socks on the floor. And every time he does that, it's like a big sign that says, I hate you. It's like, listen, give me a minute. Here, it's, I doubt it really is an act of war, you know. <laughs> I, let's, you know, and 
as a result, I mean, we got, we had a good conversation and she did not leave him, but it's, you know, we can let little things become so enormous, right? We, so don't let that happen. Would somebody tell me what time this my talk's over? 2.30 or whatever? I have five minutes? Okay. Easy peas. <laughs> Woo, okay. <laughs> I'm having too much fun up here. Okay. Um, quickly then, same with your kids. Do you see asphalt and a telephone pole when you look at your kids? I hope not. You know, have a good view of these little people who are going to be your best friends in the whole world forever, right? Um, and you know what else? They're so much fun. I know it's a lot of work, and we've been talking about that, but they are so much fun, aren't they? From the moment you bring them into the world, it's like, what did we do before? Now, um, some of you don't have children, so I'm going to talk about difficulties. Don't feel left out, okay? Um, but in, in thinking over your children, just remember that, that they are such a joy, delight, your good friends, your favorite people on the planet. Okay, skipping right along. Let's talk about our difficulties and how we view them, all right? And I learned one thing in one trial a while back, and that is, in the midst of it, find the sweet spot. And that is just getting under God's wing. And it's hard to describe, but I just got under his wing in a sense where I was just able to thank him for whatever would happen. And it was such a sweet, comforting place. And you feel so safe there. So whatever your difficulty is, however hard it is, find that sweet spot. I promise you, you're safe there. Whatever happens, whatever the outcome, and then stay there. And once you find it, you can always get it again. You just kind of nestle in. And, and there you know you're safe. And that's the kind of thing we want to practice so we can leave that legacy. Because what we are choosing to do as Christian women is actually showing our children, our grandchildren, and the other women in the church, if you don't have your own children, just this is how we do this. This is how we walk through this trial. This is how we um, climb the steep hills. Just we're showing them how we do it. And if you can find the sweet spot and you can point other women to it or your children when they need it, it's, it's, that is a legacy. And stay there. Stay there in that sweet spot because while whatever's going on is still going to be going on, you feel in the safe place because you are in the safe place. And you know God is not going to desert you. All right, skimming right over to the next thing. All right, a few more wonderful Samuel Rutherford quotations. Oh, and before I give you a couple, before you give you one, one thing I want as far to hit, thinking of legacies, the songs we've been singing, think of the hymn book. And what prompted all those saints to write those songs. Sometimes there's a lot of hardship, but they left a legacy, and we're still singing it, and we don't even know what prompted it, and yet we're benefiting from what they had learned and how they were trusting God, and isn't that wonderful? Every time you're singing a hymn. All right, 
Rutherford said, I hope to overhope and overbelieve all my troubles. Isn't that good? So you can leap over them. You can get in the sweet spot. You can overhope them. You can overbelieve them. And what that means is, I know this is a trouble, but I'm just going to maintain hope in God. I'm going to overhope it. I'm going to overbelieve here. Are you tempted to just give up? Well, remember, you're going to keep running that race. You're not at the finish line. You can't sit down when you're running a race. If you are grieving, well, remember, he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You have a Savior who knows better than you do what you're feeling. He knows about sorrow. Are you discouraged? Will you ask him for courage? Um, I heard a woman on a Bible study tape when I was a very new wife. She said, change the D to an H. Instead of discouragement, it's, or discourage, it's his courage. Disappointment, his appointment. You know, just, that is changing your view on things. Do you see that? It's just flipping your view around. His appointment, his courage, discontent, his content. Finally, the very last, the last hurdle, really, is death. You weren't expecting to hear about that today, were you? What's our attitude supposed to be? Well, it should be this. If we're practicing these things now, we'll be ready. We'll be ready to go. Um, we don't have to fear death. Um, we have a savior. And if we live well, meaning we're trusting God, walking by faith, we'll die well. We don't have to worry about it. He will be there with us. We've been practicing. We know where the sweet spot is. We can leap over a wall. You got it? You with me? And so death is coming. The Puritans use this example frequently in their writings about the hourglass. You know, I thought if I had one, it'd be very graphic. Here with the sand falling through, and, and Rutherford refers to it a lot. It's like, sands are going. <laughs> They're lower than they were yesterday, people. You know, I mean, it was keep reminding his people because really in the 17th century, many people died young. And so it was, they were a little more familiar with losing their loved ones as a regular thing. So, we, where is it in, uh, somebody here probably knows the verse, but um, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. And learn to number your days. It's not in a morbid sense, but it's like I'm running a race, there's the finish line, it's coming, I don't know exactly when, but it is. So help me to run hard, Lord, and not be trying to save a little extra somehow, but just spending it all, running hard, doing what I'm called to do for you, uh, leaping over the walls. But anyway, a couple more quotes. Paul had this great attitude about dying, great attitude about dying. He is in a Roman prison when he's writing 2 Timothy. They think it's his last, probably the last thing he wrote. And he says, um, at my first defense, no one stood with me but all forsook me, may it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Then he goes, by the way, he says, also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. What? 
Um, but he's saying here, he's in chains, he's in prison, and he's saying, at his first offense, everybody ditched him. And, but don't charge it against them, Lord. It's okay. And then that little, I wonder, what was the story there? Did he actually get thrown to the lions and like the lions didn't touch him? Maybe. Or was he supposed to be delivered to the lions and, you know, there was a flight change at the end at somehow and he didn't happen? But he was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And he, one sentence devoted to that. And we turn the page. He says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed to him till that day, till that last day. He will keep it. He tells Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I think Rachel mentioned that as well. Be a good soldier. Soldiers, Thomas Watson says, don't go around like with their finger in their eye weeping because they don't have a nice bed or whatever. But they don't whine and complain. We're soldiers. It's not a cushy life. And then Paul says, even though he is suffering in chains, he's locked up physically in chains, he says, the word of God is not chained. I love that. Talk about turning a prophet on your hardships. He has a view. He's in this cell, whatever it looks like. He's chained to the wall or to a guard. We don't, I don't know. But he says, the word of God is not changed. It's not chained up at all. It is free and loose. And so is his spirit, trusting God. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. He knows he's at the end, and he's cheering. He's cheering. He's not whining and complaining. And then one more verse, and then I'm going to be done. When he's going, he's saying goodbye to everybody in Acts 20 because he knows he's going to Jerusalem. The spirit, his spirit is bound. He knows chains are, and tribulations are waiting for him. He says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count, okay, underline this, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Isn't that remarkable? Um, Nor do I count my life dear to myself. I just want to finish this race with joy. So, I mean, Paul left us such a legacy, ladies. Hasn't he? And so we want to walk in it faithfully. Okay, so we don't feel as courageous as Paul. But we aren't having to face lions either, probably. So it's okay. It's all right. And God provides when we need it, it turns out. So Paul had a grand view from a dungeon. He had a grand view. So surely we can have a grand view from where we are right now. And let's just charge our souls to brew better. All right? Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the legacy that you have left us in your word and through your saints. I pray you would encourage us that we would open our eyes and see the wonderful view that we have of your work in the world and what you've given us to do, and we give you all the thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.